called Divine Design, Rediscovering the Christian Vision of Sexuality. As the title suggests, for the next few weeks we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality. And let me just say right from the beginning that if you're parents and if you have little children with you, perhaps primary age and under, let me just encourage you to take advantage of our children's ministry programs that we have running on a Sunday morning. Uh, we have Through Those Doors Crash, uh, Junior Kids Church and Kids Church for our kids all the way from babies up to uh, year six, primary school. So please feel free to take advantage of that. If you're parents and if you have high schoolers, uh, with you, then can I just encourage you to bring your kids along to church each week. Use the sermons, use the growth group guides as a launching pad for discussion around this incredibly important issue. Now you might remember that uh, two weeks ago Ben uh, spoke with us on the topic of money. Last week Nathaniel uh, opened up a parable about the reality of hell and this week and for the next few weeks I'm going to be talking about sex. Now, you cannot avoid, uh, accuse us, I think, of avoiding the tough subjects. You could probably avoid us of being a little bit crazy, uh, but this is where we're going. But the reality is that sex is not just a, a tough or difficult topic for us to discuss. It's an incredibly important and necessary topic for us to talk about. And the, there's many reasons, of course, for that, but number one among those reasons is that we want to honour God. We want to honour God with every single area of our lives, and that includes our sexuality. You see, the truth is, God created us as sexual beings. Our sexuality was given to us by God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we didn't come up with the idea of sex. God did. God didn't look down upon Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and go, Hey, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? What's going on down there? No, no, no. God said to the first couple in the Garden of Eden, he said, be fruitful and increase in number. This is the very first command given in the Bible, actually. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I like what one of my favourite preachers says, and I'll put this in the, the bulletin blog for this week, Ray Ortland. He says, God values your sexuality. He isn't sorry he made you human rather than angelic. An angel is a spirit without a body. A human being is a spirit with a body. And God isn't embarrassed that he gave us bodies with sexual feelings. He does grieve when we abuse his gift, but he isn't sorry he gave us the gift. See, our sexuality is from God. It's a beautiful God-given gift and it's a fundamental part of our humanity. But the Bible also tells us that as a result of our rebellion against God, this world and our lives have been ravaged by sin. That we no longer live in harmony with our Creator God and with one another. And the result is brokenness and disorder in every area of our lives, in every area of our existence, including our sexuality. And this is why every single one of us in this room are complicated when it comes to sex. This is why we have histories. We have longings. We have guilt. We have hurts and regrets and some of them are deep. Todd Wilson, a pastor and author, he says it this way, our lives are often messy, even our sexuality. 
We're broken people deeply affected by the ravages of sin. Our sexuality is often battered and bruised by brokenness. It becomes, in a sense, bent sexuality. This is for every single one of us. And so it's important for us to talk about this topic of sex because it's a gift from God, but it's one in which has been affected and marred by our sin. It's not only important to talk about sex and sexuality for those reasons, but also because of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. I mean, we look around in our culture and sex is everywhere. It's in movies and books and TV shows and music. It's in shopping centres and on social media. We're surrounded by sex. I was talking to a high school chaplain this week and he said to me that teenagers, young people today, are bombarded with messages about sex and sexuality every single day. And those messages come in many different mediums and in many different forms. And not only that, but the message keeps changing. I mean, in the wake of the sexual revolution, which kind of got going in the 60s, and in just a few short decades, our cultural understanding of sex and sexuality has changed dramatically. Dramatically. Just a few decades ago, some of the things that we see perhaps going on around us would have been largely unthinkable. But the ground has shifted And the reality is that the church is not unaffected. Many in the church have been swept up in this sweeping change. I mean, I'm well aware that even among us, there are different views on what constitutes biblical sexuality. I think Todd Wilson, again, puts it quite well when he says, for an increasing number of Christians, the Bible's teaching about human sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular no longer makes sense. At best, it seems quaint, like an antique that no longer serves any good purpose. At worst, it strikes many as offensive. Either way, what centuries of Christians have always believed has nowadays become a point of stumbling. While same-sex relationships and other departures from historic Christian sexual ethics seem normal, even laudable. We live in a different world today, and listen to me carefully, I'm not looking at the past with rose-coloured lenses. I mean, I'm well aware that when it comes to sexuality in years gone by, that there was a prudish, self-righteous tone which was often harsh and hypocritical. I'm well aware that people who experienced same-sex attraction in years gone by did not have the space to be open about that in the church. And that was, there was great harm done to people as a result of that. I'm not longing for the good old days. God's not calling us to go back in time. God is calling us to be faithful in our time, in the days that we have on this earth. I just want us to acknowledge that the ground has shifted when it comes to this important area. And I think for many believers, we feel like we're navigating terrain that we're not sure how to do it. We're not sure where to go. We're not sure. And this is why we're launching into this series that we're looking at for the next few weeks. We want to hear from the eternal, unchanging Word of God how we should understand and how we should navigate this important area of our lives. One of the uh, resources that I'll be bouncing out of, I've been doing lots of reading and study in preparation for this series, but one of the key resources that we'll be bouncing out of is a book called Mere Sexuality by Todd Wilson. Todd's a pastor, a scholar in the States, and he's written a a helpful little volume to help us understand the the Christian vision 
of sexuality. But let me just be clear that right up front, the, the, the point of this series is not to point fingers, but to paint a picture. The point of this series is not to criticise, but to clarify. This is not in any response to cultural wars or anything like that. We're not trying to tear anything down. We just want to understand what God is saying to us as his people, as to how we are to live faithfully to him in this area. And so in the coming weeks, I just want to paint a picture of the Christian vision of sexuality. I want us to see what the Bible says about our sexuality in all of its depth, in all of its nuance, and in all of its beauty. And so as we begin today, I need to paint the background. I need to give us the backdrop before we can start to add in some of the details. See, there are some core convictions that stand at the heart of the Christian vision of sexuality. And I want to share four of these core convictions with us today from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. To have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And while you're turning there, let me give you some context for these verses, which we'll be reading in just a moment. 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, an early Christian leader, to the church in Corinth, a city that was part of the Roman Empire. Now, Corinth was very much like one of our modern cities. New York, Sydney, Brisbane. It was known for its wealth. And it was known for being a kind of cosmopolitan city. It had many different cultures, many different religions, many different kinds and groups of people. It was also known for its sexual indulgence. Every night, over 1,000 temple prostitutes would come into the city from the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and they would come into the city to practice their trade. It was a city and a place where really anything goes. And this kind of attitude in Corinth had infiltrated the church. We read in the, in the letter in chapter 5 that there was a case of incest in the church. That there was confusion about marriage and singleness. That there was a lax attitude towards sexuality in general. And so when Paul writes these verses that we're about to read, he's writing into a context with significant sexual confusion. And he's giving the church in Corinth, and so he's giving us a foundation to help us understand our sexuality. He's giving us a God-centered way to view this important area. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so in this passage, we see four core convictions that are at the heart of the Christian vision of sexuality. Number one, core conviction number one, our sexuality really matters. It really matters. In verses 9 to 10, Paul gives a list of sinful attitudes and actions that exclude one from the kingdom of God. Twice he uses that phrase, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now remember, Paul is writing to believers, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to warn them 
that there are sinful patterns and sinful actions that are opposed to the kingdom of God. And if we as believers persist in them unrepentantly and unapologetically, then it reveals we are outside the kingdom of God. Now we know the good news of the gospel. We know that God forgives us our sin in Christ. But we must also know that the one thing the gospel never does is nothing. The one thing the gospel never does is nothing because the grace of God turns us around and gets us going in a new direction. And we begin to stumble forward into imperfect but real obedience to God. And Paul is writing these verses to warn the sexually confused Christians in Corinth. But we must also be very very clear about this, and I want to be very clear about this, that the list that Paul gives in verses 9 to 10, it's not describing one-off actions, but a consistent pattern. In other words, it's not describing the Christian who sins sexually but then turns to God in repentance and cries out to God for strength in the struggle. It's not even describing the Christian who sexually sins at regular intervals but who keeps repenting and keeps crying out to God, keeps fighting the fight. It's talking about the Christian. It's describing the person who claims they are a Christian but for whom there is no struggle. It's the person who celebrates what God condemns, who revels in what God says should be repented of. One commentator says, it's not that any person who ever commits one of the sins will not inherit the kingdom. Paul is thinking of persistent rebellion against God, not the temporary backsliding or lapse of the believer. So obviously it's hard to overstate how seriously the Bible takes our sexuality. And the reason I think this truth lands so heavily on us is because this flies in the face of everything we hear and everything we're told. I mean, the dominant message we hear is not that sex really matters, but rather sex is no big deal. It's just a recreational activity for consenting adults. And as long as it's approached carefully and safely, it's just a bit of fun. Or it's just an appetite that needs to be satisfied. It's an urge that needs to be met. It's as natural as eating and drinking. I mean, we get hungry, so we eat. We get thirsty, so we drink. We feel sexual desire, so we have sex. It's not a big deal. It's it's completely natural. This is the air we breathe. And funnily enough, this is precisely what the Corinthian church believed and was saying to Paul as well. You see, a little bit later in verse 13, Paul actually quotes the Corinthians. They had written their own letters to Paul. And Paul quotes one of their arguments back at them. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, You say food is for the stomach, or food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. That's what the Corinthians had said to Paul. They're saying sex is just like eating. It's just an urge, an appetite to be satisfied. And in fact, they say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. It's just your body. What's far more important is your soul. That's what really matters to God. But look at what Paul says as he confronts this argument. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord Christ from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul is saying that our bodies were created by God and for God. And that our bodies have an eternal future. They will be raised again. We won't be souls floating around for all eternity. We'll be bodily resurrected like Jesus. And what this means is that our bodies matter to God. And what we do with our bodies matters to God. David Platt 
well-known preacher, he says it this way. He says, we are so driven today by whatever can bring our bodies the most pleasure. What can we see? What can we touch? What can we do? What can we eat? What can we listen to? What can we engage in? We are drowning in a culture that screams out, please your body at every turn. And the Bible shouts, please God at every turn. Our bodies have been created not ultimately for self-gratification, but for God-glorification. God's given us our bodies. He's given us the gift of sexuality so that we can please and honour him. And this is why our sexuality really matters. Core conviction number one. Core conviction number two is that true freedom is found in submission to God's design, not our fallen desires. So as we've already said, God has given to us the gift of sex. He is the creator and designer of us and our sexuality. And that means only God can define and delimit our sexuality. Which means that our true freedom will only be found in submission to God's design rather than our fallen desires. See, like we also said, the Bible tells us that we live in a world that has been broken and fractured and marred by sin and our rebellion. And what this means is that our experience and our expression of sexuality has also been broken and disordered. It means that we experience sexual desires that are not in line with God's design. And this is true for every single one of us. In fact, the Bible has a word for sexual practice that's outside of God's good design. It's the Greek word porneia. It's the word from which we get our word pornography. Paul uses it at the top of the list that he gave us in verses 9 to 10 where it was translated as sexual immorality. And that's basically what it means. It refers to the practice of sexual immorality of any kind. And for the Christian who wants to live faithfully in this world, we are called to resist porneia, to resist being led away by our fallen desires and instead to live in submission to God's good design. Now again, I'm very aware of how countercultural this is because the dominant message again that we hear about sex and sexuality is not obey God and disobey your desires, the, the, the fallen desires that we experience, but it's ignore God and indulge your desires. It's do whatever makes you happy as long as you don't hurt anyone. Express your sexuality in whatever way you see fit and no one has the right to tell you otherwise. Jonathan Grant, in his book, Divine Sex, which is a crazy title, in fact, someone walked into my office this week and they saw it on my desk and they went, well, that sounds like an interesting book. I went, yeah, it is. He's written this book and he says this, he says, modern authenticity... I lost it. It's not on the screen. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do, he's saying in our day, in our culture, the worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside, by society, by our parents, by the church, or whoever else. And again, this view shouldn't surprise you because this too was the view in ancient Corinth. I mean, Paul once again quotes the arguments of the Corinthians back at them in verse 12 and look at what they were saying. I have the right to do anything, you say. This is what the Corinthians are saying to Paul. In other words, Paul, who do you think you are telling us what to do? We are free to do whatever we want. Look at what Paul says in response to them. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial, he says there firstly. Paul's saying in the heat of the moment, 
The things that you want to do, they look good. They look really good. But if you could just step back, if you could see through your desires, you would see that in the long run, to act on these desires would be harmful to you, to others, to your Christian witness. Paul goes on. He says, I have the right to do anything. And he responds again. He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, when we do whatever we want, it can initially seem thrilling and exciting, even freeing. But in the long run, Paul says, it can lead to addiction and a loss of control. In other words, when we give ourselves over to our sexual desires, we don't control them, but they control us. Let's just think about the example of pornography. Now, according to the stats, porn is a massive issue. And more and more people, including non-Christians, are beginning to realise that it's not just a little bit of innocent fun, but it's actually an enslaving and a harmful force. In fact, in 2012, Men's Health magazine, which isn't a Christian magazine the last time I checked, uh, they summarised eight harmful effects of pornography. Number one, they said it is progressive. In other words, it has a downward trajectory. It starts out, you know, perhaps in this sense, but then it just goes down and needs more and whatever. Number two, it creates unrealistic expectations. Number three, it can lead to casual sex. Number four, it amplifies emotional problems. Number five, it creates unhealthy sexual bonds. Number six, it counterfeits intimacy. Number seven, it disrupts real relationships. And number eight, it hurts your spouse. I mean, more and more people are beginning to realise that doing whatever we want, that viewing whatever we want, it does not lead to sexual liberation and sexual freedom, but actually to sexual addiction and sexual confusion. When we indulge our sexual desires, we don't control them, but they begin to control us. Now, in a minute, we're going to see that there is hope and healing for those who have done whatever they want, for for all of us who are sexual sinners. But we must understand that for the Christian who wants to live faithfully in this world, we've been called to resist pornea, to resist being led away or enslaved by our fallen desires and to live in obedience to God's design. This is the way Paul says it a little bit later in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. That's that word pornea. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Now, now just get that. Paul's talking to sexual sinners here and he's saying, hey, hey, don't do this because you belong to God. You are God's. It's not saying, hey, stop doing this so that you will belong to God. You belong to him. You were bought with a price. So glorify God, honour God with your bodies. If we want to understand the Christian vision of sexuality, number one, we need to know our sexuality really matters. Number two, that true freedom is found in submission to God's design, not our fallen desires. And we need to know, number three, that sexual sin is not the worst sin. Now sometimes Christians are criticised for being obsessed, overly obsessed with sexual sin for regularly and loudly talking about sexual sin while conveniently overlooking other categories of sin. And before we get defensive and make excuses, let's admit that the critics have a point. I mean, isn't it true that Christians sometimes make a massive deal about issues like adultery and homosexuality but then seem to conveniently overlook 
other things that the Bible talks about, even things that Paul lists in this verse that we're looking at right here. I mean, look at verse 10 again. Paul says, Do not be deceived, neither thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul includes all of these things right alongside sexual sin, greed, not being generous with our money, drunkenness. He includes slander, which is all forms of verbal abuse and coarse talk, which would include the words that we use on social media. Swindling, stealing from work, cheating on taxes. Paul lists all of these things right alongside sexual sin as patterns that if we indulge unrepentantly and unapologetically can exclude us from the kingdom of God or reveal that we're not a part of the kingdom of God. And so it's hypocritical to be experts in the sexual sin of others and to be ignorant of the sin in your own lives. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. It is healthier to think of one's own. If we're going to have a Christian vision of sexuality, number one, we need to know that our sexuality really matters. Number two, that there are t- that true freedom is found in submission to God's design rather than our fallen desires. Number three, that sexual sin is not the worst of all sin. And number four, that though we're all sexually broken in Jesus, we can be and we are being made sexually whole. See, Paul doesn't just warn the Corinthian believers about what they're doing. He goes on to remind them about what God has done for them in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. These things characterized your past. But something's happened. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul's saying something has happened that has changed you irrevocably and completely. Your identity and your trajectory has changed. You have a new identity in Christ and you have a new future with God. And I really want you to personalise this. Because you see, Paul is obviously writing here to the church in Corinth. He's writing to these Corinthian believers, but God is speaking to you today through his word. And Paul says three things have happened for believers in this verse, and I want you to say them for yourself. Just in your heart of heart, say to yourself, I am washed in Christ. I am cleansed and forgiven for what is past. I am sanctified in Christ. I am set apart for God's service in this present life. And I am justified In Christ, I am righteous. I am in a right relationship with God both now and into the future. You see, the gospel is good news for sexual sinners like us, like me. Because when it comes to our sexual sin and our brokenness, in whatever form it takes, there is cleansing to be found in Jesus. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. There is healing to be found in Jesus. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, but not for me. Adam, you don't know what I've got going on in my heart. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Jesus could not forgive me, could not cleanse me, could not accept me. I want you to know that Jesus Christ was 
so gentle and so tender with sexual sinners when, during his time on earth. In fact, Jesus once met a woman caught in adultery and he did not condemn her, but he loved her, he protected her, he dignified her and then he set her on a new path towards healing and wholeness. The gospel is good news for sexual sinners like us. In fact, I'll never forget the story I once heard about a preacher who was speaking to high school students and university students and he was trying to get them to see the the dangers of sexual promiscuity. And he spoke very negatively about sex and as he spoke, he passed a single rose throughout the crowd. And there were about a thousand people there and he invited everyone to smell it, to handle it, to touch it, to look at it. And at the end of his message, as he wrapped up, he asked for the rose to be handed back to him. And you can imagine what it looked like by now. It was broken, it was drooping, it had petals missing. And as he wrapped up his message, the preacher said, as he held up the rose, now who would want this? Who would possibly want this rose now? And his point was, if you have been sexually promiscuous, then who would want you? And there was a young man there that night he had invited a friend along and this friend that he brought with him was a, a single mom and she was not a Christian, he was a Christian and he'd actually been sharing the gospel with this young lady and he said in that moment when the preacher finished this message and held this rose up asking the question, he said it took everything in him not to cry out, Jesus wants the rose. He said Jesus wants the rose, that's the point of the gospel, that's the point of the Christian faith, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus wants you. Jesus wants me. And when we open ourselves up to Jesus, when we receive him with repentance and faith, He brings his grace, his beauty and his power into our lives. He washes us, he sanctifies us, he justifies us and he graciously leads us towards healing and wholeness. So have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you opened up to the healing work of Jesus in this arena of your sexuality? Or is this a space of your life that you've closed off from God? Is this a space you don't like to think about it? It's too painful. It's too shameful. It's too difficult. Friends, Jesus specialises in putting broken things back together. In fact, I want to close with this. In Japan, there's an ancient practice called kintsugi. And what it means, it means golden joinery or to patch with gold. It's an age-old custom of repairing cracked pottery with real gold. And you see, the broken pottery actually becomes more valuable and more beautiful in the restoration process. Because even though it was once broken and in pieces, it's being put back together with great love and great care by master craftsmen. And it's given a new, even better story than before. And friends, Jesus is the ultimate master craftsman. Jesus' promise over us, over every single one of us, is behold, I am making all things new. Because Jesus specialises in putting broken things back together. And this is the most important piece in the Christian vision of sexuality. This is the backdrop upon which we can begin to paint the picture. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, 
I, like the Apostle Paul, feel like I am the chief of sinners. And Lord, I simply ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters whom I love deeply that we would open up to you, Jesus, to your healing, restoring love, even in the deepest, most profound, most sensitive parts of our lives. We need you, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Church, would you stand and hear these these verses from the Word of God? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.
Notre Dieu. 